On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. The Nylon Curtain turned 40 last September, and we can't help but take one last look at it as we start the new year. Back in the fall, Michael and I did our album spotlight where we discussed the history and making of the album, along with our track-by-track commentary. This time, we're speaking with two people who helped make the record into the classic we all know today. Our guests for this episode are Larry Frank and Bradshaw Lee. Both were engineers at A&R Recording, where Billy worked with Phil Ramone to produce his string of hit albums from the late 1970s through the mid-80s. Larry and Brad were involved with many of these records, and for this episode, they're taking us through what it was like creating Billy's most sonically ambitious album. You'll hear about the studio tricks they used for sound effects, how they used analog effects well before today's digital plugins, and how the band and studio crew went about fulfilling Billy's goal of making an album inspired by the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's. With track-by-track commentary, stories from the sessions, and deep dives into the recording technology of the day, It's the closest you can get to being a fly on the wall of the live room and mixing booth back in 1982. Join us for another look behind the nylon curtain. We're approaching all these anniversaries. It's fun to be able to camp out on these records for a while and I, I feel like we're we're going at them from different angles too so it's not like we're necessarily belaboring the point but the album happens to be the touchstone that all of these episodes connect to people are being so generous with their time spending an hour hour and a half on a zoom call with us going through their notes and dredging up as many memories as they can we end up with more than we could possibly put in one episode. I mean, we thought Nylon Curtain, we thought we were going to do like maybe one episode. We were doing our walkthrough, yeah. plus some thoughts from Brad, and this has become you know its own thing. Larry came out swinging, <laughs> as you'll hear. <laughs> the man was like, I made notes on every song. We're like, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and then birthed out of that conversation was your Thundercats playlist episode. Yeah, yeah. So this is like a, a little anachronistic because uh, yeah, the other one came out first. <laughs> the funny thing was I had a, a gig that night. It was a Wednesday night and I was supposed to co-host a jam session. 7.30, I had to be there and I was like, all right, we'll probably be on the phone with this guy for like 45 minutes tops. Let's just start this at 6 and we'll be fine. I'll have enough time to take the train down and this and that. I was like... Nope, I made it by the skin of my teeth. I was in an Uber <laughs> or a Lyft, rather, just like going down Broad Street, like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come <laughs> on. <laughs> but uh, totally worth it. Absolutely worth it. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Just hear somebody tell these amazing stories of recording in this in the 80s. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You and I got into June talking, wow, we really haven't done too many interviews this year. 
you know, for better or worse, it's just yeah. what it was. Right. You know, we had some great episodes that were just the two of us. And, you know, shortly after that, did the John Small, Steve Cohen thing come together and then all this nylon curtain love. And so we got Brad on the line and we talked with Russell and Dan Orlando earlier. So it was, you know, all of these great conversations just seemed to all unfold in pretty quick succession. So I'm glad we were able to finally put this all together and talk a little bit more behind the nylon curtain this time around. The bulk of this episode is Larry Frank, but we also got to reconnect with our with our old friend Bradley. I don't know. Can we call him old friends now? We've known him for two years. He's been on a couple times. <laughs> I think so. And he's a guy that we've got a really comfortable rapport with. And he's been incredibly gracious with his time as well and is a real treat to pick his brain, not only about you know workings on these albums, but the industry in general. And he's got a lot of really inter- interesting insight as mm-hmm. to where the industry went, where it's been, and you know all the moving parts in between. Uh, and he's got a great YouTube channel too, which, you know, he mentions here and there. And, uh, you know, it occurred to me, uh, giving away some of the store for free to us. He's giving it away for free to you too on YouTube. If you're at all interested in the uh, audio production, it's a really nice mix of stuff. And, uh, you know, he's a very personable guy and he's, he's good at, at breaking things down and explaining them nicely. Definitely worth checking out. So with that said, let's get into our conversation with Larry Frank. How did your involvement working with Phil and ultimately Billy, how did that all start? I got to New York. I started at A&R Recording in 1979, starting as uh, as most of us did as you know an, an assistant doing whatever around the studio just to get our, our foot in the door. I'm a piano player and a musician myself, so I had aspirations to get into the studio big time. At some point, the opportunity came to work with Phil, and Phil sort of handpicked the people that he wanted to come and work with him with his projects. Phil's studio was Studio R2, 322 West 48th Street. There were two locations to A&R, 322 West 48th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues, and then there was 799 7th Avenue uh, between 52nd and 53rd Street, which is where the album 52nd Street is, the picture is from there. That's from mm-hmm. the freight elevator at the ground level. And that's where the our church, we call it our church, a Studio A1 was located. So Phil really did all of his tracks, did most of his um, tracking in A1. And then he went over and brought the tapes to his uh, mix room, uh, R2, which was Studio R2, 322 mm-hmm. West 48th Street. At some point around, I think, late 1979 or something, I was... The offer came for me to work with Phil, and I said, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> That's when I, you know, got into that that group. I did so many projects, and Phil, oh, he was always working on more than one thing at a time. And I know that first we did songs in the attic, and then we did Nylon Curtain. But in the middle there, there was a Paul Simon demo, an album called Get Wet, a group called Get Wet, which was an, another interesting uh, group. If I remember correctly, I believe Liberty played on that record. Yes, yes. I think um, Dave Brown did some work on that, too. And then there was the In Harmony record where when Billy contributed the song Nobody Knows But Me, I think. I didn't work on that Billy recording, but I worked on the Lucy Simon album and actually sang on a track with uh, Dr. John. I sang on Splish Splash. That was a a big thing for me to be able to sing on on a song. 
Songs in the Attic was your first project with Billy? That was 1981, and Alan Curtin was 1982. Uh, Lennon had died in 1980. I was lucky enough to work with him for a few weeks in A1 also. He and uh, Yoko came over. John Lennon was on everybody's mind, needless to say, like the world's mind. But yes, the Songs in the Attic was the first one that, that I worked on of Billy's records, and then Nylon Curtain was the second one. You'll notice some pictures there I sent you. There's some really great black and whites of Billy with shoes in front of him. That was from Glass Houses. That was from before okay. I worked with Phil. I was flitting around the studio with my camera, and Billy was doing the bridge on Don't Ask Me Why from Glass Houses. Yeah. And the bridge was originally, he wanted to try castanets. It turned out to be castanets. But he first tried Laura's shoes. And he goes, right? And then he tried those high heel shoes. Those pictures were from that. That was in the lobby at 322 West 48th Street. That was from the lobby there. So I was around for a lot of this, but didn't start working with Phil and Jim and the gang until songs in the attic and i think you worked on billy's two most uh, sonically adventurous albums you know obviously well, uh the nylon curtain is the big studio album but what an undertaking yeah. songs in the attic must have been trying to record all that and then on digital nonetheless yes now i was not on the recordings there that was the okay. truck that was that was live in cities that was mm-hmm. Chaz clifton pretty much my colleague Ch- Chaz clifton okay and other people okay. too i came on to songs in the attic when there was one inch Mitsubishi, I think it was 32 track digital, and they also recorded analog. But all of those tapes came back and were located in the city and at RPM recording. Uh, and uh, actually, Elliot Shiner was the engineer for, for Songs in the Attic. Mm-hmm. So, me, Elliot, Brad, and Jim, and whoever else was around, we worked with Billy to choose the songs from the various cities that they wanted to use. That was at RPM recording. When the select takes were made, we came back to 322 West 48th Street and put the, put the record together and sequenced the record, you know. When it came to deciding the songs that were going to go on the album, had, had the, the songs been chosen and you were going through performances to decide which which show, or was it even determining what songs were going to go on? Both of those, Michael. It was like, um, you know, he did everything. He did so much live, and Mm -hmm. it was both of those things. It was determining, and if if there wasn't a take that Billy and and Phil and everybody liked, they wouldn't use the song. That's how they did that. And I remember it was a very tedious process because we'd have like a whole reel of Summer Highland Falls, and we'd have a whole reel of, you know, Captain Jacks, and we'd have to listen to them all, and know decide which one so and then we choose sequence the record add a little you know between the takes you'd add some some ambience and stuff to to smooth out the transition because you know you don't we, he didn't want to just stop it and, and start another one he we made it a continuous thing yeah. and that's one thing that i always was impressed by on that album as well too because you're going from the arena environment to the club environment yeah. back and forth yeah. throughout the album and yeah. It's not jarring whatsoever. There were always room mics. Whenever Billy recorded, including for Nylon Curtain, we always had mics high up in the ceiling. I mean, way high up and way on the other side of the room. One of those pictures is also Studio A1. That was the room. Stranger was done in there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. all of his A&R records were done in that, in that room. That's, that's the Studio A1. 
one of those pictures I was putting up to uh, a Neumann 87, which we had like two of them, one pretty close to Liberty, but way up, and then one on the other side. So, and we would always add room mics. The same thing in the arenas. There were always room mics uh, to record ambience of wherever they were. And then we'd fade between big, big room, little room, and then it would it would become a, a large arena, and then you'd go whoop, and then the the small the small environment would be obvious. Merging the rooms from one to the other, would that happen during like the applause, or would that actually happen like sort of subtly during the song, and the and the, the room would suddenly get smaller during the song? The song would end. The audience would roar and applaud and show their appreciation <laughs> and yeah. and you would crossfade that with billy's introducing and now we're going to do whatever uh piano man or whatever and then the yeah. audience would applause on the intro and you'd crossfade those two going back to the song selection real quick was there a real sort of scientific quantitative pr- approach to listening to like an entire reel of one song or was it a lot of gut was it that's the one it was gut. it was yeah no, there wasn't anything scientific about it it was artist preference you know mm-hmm. uh phil and billy you know sometimes they did it together sometimes there was there was only one of them around and then they'd have to it's what we yeah. chose what do you think yeah. but i remember a lot of that was done the song selection a lot of that was done at rpm studios and that was in the west village i believe i i, I forgot but this was a time when Phil was on the outs with A&R recording. They had some friction. And that's why when it came to mixing, actually mixing those takes, we were in La Mobile, living at Pound Ridge, living at Phil's house. Hmm. We used to call it Camp Ramon. <laughs> oh, and, that, and there's some pictures of that, too. There's some, me and Jim behind, and Brad there. Uh, mm-hmm. We're listening to one of the mixes we did. Then there's the truck with the knee cam flying Fader's computer. There was like a large, you know, a seven inch floppy disk running uh-huh. out to the garage because it was cool. And, and the computer, the mainframe had to be kept cool. And it was summer. It was very yeah. hot. And you mentioned knee cam because I, I've heard some of the outtakes from Attic over the years that have surfaced. And yeah. I'm not sure who it is slating the beginning of the take where it says, you know, Summer Highland Falls, you know, MSG, NECAM 4. If there are slates for Attic, it's Elliot Shiner. We've dug into songs in the Attic, not really on the on the show yet, but certainly on our own time. It's been known that, uh, was it, uh, I think Billy Ballard, Billy the Kid is actually a sound check. And uh, I think Michael actually kind of spliced one together where you're looking at how the vocals on Say Goodbye to Hollywood might have been a different take. Say Goodbye to Hollywood were musically, especially I noticed with Liberty, Liberty's drums match perfectly, but Billy's vocals sounded like they came from somewhere else. Made them some overdubs. You know, you mentioned media. I remember media, but not very, not very much. I remember doing get wet at media. So I don't remember okay. Billy in media. 
Uh-huh. You mentioned media sound, and I remember doing overdubs for Get Wet. And the reason okay. I remember that is because Phil, I remember some Phil antics from media that were pretty funny. Yeah. 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 I, yeah we had read that it started, Nylon was both A&R and media. And the Saturday Night Live performance that Billy did was at media as well. Phil was a multitasker before that word became popular. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. was like doing 10 things at one time. And um, I can just give you what my memory is. Coming off of uh, Songs in the Attic. And then you said you did the um, the Sesame Street thing. Paul Simon and... Get Wet Project. Yeah, yeah. When it came to a new studio album for Billy, uh, were you... Uh, you know, and Brad and Jim involved at all in any the sort of pre-production meetings or the planning, or, or would you guys just show up and be ready to capture what happened? What I remember most about Nylon Curtain is hearing that Billy wanted it to be his Sergeant Pepper. As I said, Lennon was on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. And to that end, he and Phil wanted to record horns and strings and whatever else they could dig up on everything and use them or not in the mix as wanted or needed. So the watchword for Nylon Curtain was Sergeant Pepper. For example, who's to say? That's I am the walrus. Yes. Um, That was uh, Dave Grusin was the arranger for the horns horns and strings. You know, he just wanted to pull out all the stops, as they say. You yeah. know where that comes from, pulling out, pulling out all the stops? I don't. No. Okay, a Hammond B3 organ, those little things that you pull out. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, oh, yeah. Pulling out all the stops the... Ma- means the organ is the loudest it can be. So that's where pulling out all the stops comes from. Oh, Hammond B3 I did... organ. I those never made that connection. That you pull out. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he, yeah. so Billy wanted to pull out all the stops for, for this record, and, uh, and they did. And some of it was funny, like, this, like the horns on Allentown. I shared some outtakes with some people that have have disseminated them. I don't know why they did. They shouldn't have. But at some, at some point on Facebook, I did. And I will never do that again because they're not mine. Really. You know, I, I have some stuff and because uh, I was always rolling tape and having a good time. But I never meant that to be shared with anybody. I just got friendly with some people on Facebook. From what I read in Phil's book and, and from hearing from other people, I feel like or it seems like Phil was very much a capture of the moment sort of producer. You know, he was, he was a lot of get rid of all the distractions, let the artist shine. And you know, that seems maybe not at odds, but doesn't seem like the kind of producer that would naturally gravitate towards this. Let's create the studio as an instrument and let's, 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 let's make as many experimental sounds, things like that. Was this still firmly within Phil's wheelhouse or was this something that was maybe a step out of the ordinary for him as well to go that sonically dense? Both things you said are true about Phil. What I, what I loved about my mentors, Elliot, just to go backtrack a little bit, Elliot was responsible for Steely Dan's drum sound and Steely Dan's sound. Now, granted, they had the top of the top of the tops all the time, and Donald and Walter were maniacs, and Elliot happened to be there at the right time, blah, 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 blah. But Elliot learned from Phil. Elliot would live EQ drums, meaning mm-hmm. the microphones coming into the console, Elliot would have no compunction about adding EQ. I, I know what all Elliot's EQs are for drum sets. I can record a drum set like Elliot did, and I, I did. I did some Phoebe Snow demos with him. Phil, on the other hand, Phil's whole thing was, I don't want you telling me what I'm going to mix. 
So what? So if you're engineering for me, Phil says, I want mm-hmm. you to go out there and listen to what you're recording. Put the mic where it best picks up that instrument, or if it's a direct, like if it's a bass or something, you know, whatever. Don't mess with the stuff coming on, going on tape. So record mm-hmm. as much of the sound as you can, as you hear it, as we hear it. And that's what I want you to do as an engineer. As far as mm-hmm. Phil's being comfortable with the creative process as it went along, I watched them do this. I mean, you know, <laughs> you jarred my memory with the, with the motorcycle accident because I'm thinking to myself, maybe that's why this record took nine months because Billy, I remember Billy coming in, Billy and Jim went for a motorcycle ride one night and Billy comes in with a cast on his arm up, mm-hmm. up to, you know, up to his, <laughs> up to his, you know, between his palm. Yeah. And everybody said, whoa, you know, what's going to happen now? Maybe that, that's why the record took so long as he had a heel. I don't remember when it was. I remember it happened. Mm-hmm. I remember nothing mm-hmm. happened to Jim, but they were together riding and, and it did happen. But yeah. the most time was spent creating these songs. They were written in Studio A1 and at wherever Billy, you know, created at his house in his home studio. Brad and I put a studio in his house during that time. We put a little demo studio up there for him. Do you recall what that home studio was like? Yeah, it was like a room. It was maybe it was like a, another house off of his, off of the main house. Mm-hmm. And there was an upstairs, and we I remember we brought the equipment in. It was like it was like a regular rec room, but it wasn't really. I don't think that it was really sound. It wasn't really sound reinforced or anything. It was just a place, something he had at home that he could lay down mm-hmm. some ideas with. But this record. It seemed to take shape as time went on over this time in the studio. I mean, so I don't know how much of this stuff is out and where it, where some of it came from, but there was a song called The Prime of Your Life, and it was an acoustic song where Dave Brown played the 12-string, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, prime of your life, and that became the longest time on the next record. ideas floating around during nylon curtain that either didn't make the record like you mentioned elvis presley boulevard and another song called and it's funny because it was called numbers and i see it now i don't know maybe billy released it. i don't even know where that came from it sounds like his demo called it um a piece of the action or something like that that right. was called numbers and that was okay. done with nylon curtain also there were a lot of ideas it was a very I thought it was a very creative time for him, and mm-hmm. I felt so like privileged to be like there, the, there all the time watching this happen. It was amazing. 
whereas the orchestra was mm-hmm. a song, not an afterthought, but it, I guess it was something that they weren't sure if they wanted to do or not. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had wondered if Phil was going to play the violin on that because Phil was a violin, a violin yeah. player. We wound up mixing that a la Beatles. So Billy's panned all the way hard left or right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah, know it's where, one of the other where my, yeah, where my yeah. buds were, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time. And then the strings <laughs> were over there or whatever. And there was a quartet and there was a harp. Um, oh, accordion, right? Accordion. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. it's a beautiful song. You were just talking about how, you know, they wanted to bring everything in. You know, they had horns on Allentown, things like that. And you also said that the record really took shape in the studio as they were recording it. Were there any like sort of tough decisions on paring down the sound on some of these songs and getting rid of those auxiliary instruments? If you hear the horns on Allentown, iron and coal, bah! you know, it sounds like a show tune. Some of it was a no brainer and we all sort of heard it and laughed. That's the glaring one that I remember, but it wasn't hard to pare down. Everybody sort of heard it and you know, ultimately Billy, Billy and, and Phil made the decision to either use it or not. The, you know, the Nylon Curtain, as far as studio albums go, coming off of Glass Houses, which was pretty much, you know, six guys in a room playing, yeah, you know, it was, it was very live in yeah. that way, where this was, you know, let's see how far we can stretch it and move it and add layers and textures. And it's such right. a very different feeling record. That's true. To that point, uh, Michael, uh, Room of Our Own and Surprises, Room of Our Own was all live if you want to talk about glass houses, that was a full and and Phil Phil and Billy both preferred to do a live recording of the band. We separated everything out in A one. Dave Brown's guitar amp was over there. Billy was in the center, but the piano was dog housed, and we could actually use Billy's live vocal on a live band recording, which we did. Room of Our Own is all live. Surprises all live. I put minimal overdubs. I don't remember what the overdubs mm-hmm. would be, but I know Room of Our Own was pretty much a live rock and roll recording, man. That That's as good as it gets, man. Room right. of Our yeah. Own. Jesus, mm-hmm. man. Kick well, ass. And you, can, and you can hear it on the final mix because I think Liberty mentioned in his book, he's, he said, by the time you hear Billy's Count In, we're, we're already playing the groove. Yeah. So there's yeah. just a quick stop, a count in, and we're back into it. Before they started, before that count off, they were playing Led Zeppelin. Do, 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 And I, I oh, know yeah. that because I have the outtake. So yeah. Oh, that's why I remember. That. So so after that, he goes, then Phil goes, all right, let's do this. Let's do this. And then mm-hmm. the count off. I love that. That's great. Right. More people should just do that. They should just play Fool in the Rain and then go scorching yeah, into the wrong song. I always forget the name of that song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so let's do it. Let's, let's go song, uh, song to song right. if you have your notes, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, Allentown yeah. is first. I remember at the time my dad was sick in a hospital in Boston, and I was so into this project, I went to see him and I said, I'm hearing a pile driver. i got to record that for the record. <laughs> <laughs> they want a pile driver. <laughs> Billy's saying he wants a pile driver. I don't know if I ever did it. I don't think I ever did it, but pile driver was a stock sound effect. Was it? Okay. It really? was a stock sound effect. And the steam whistle, stock sound effect. Now, I was just talking to Brad, and I can't tell you how relieved I was because because I flew in the pile driver. And we're living here in Elliot. You know, chunk, chunk, you know, 
the pile driver. And I, I flew those in with Jim. You have it on a quarter inch tape. Jim says we're rolling. Fly them in. You mark the tape. Whatever. You mark it with a grease pencil. You mark it with a leader. But you know where the pile driver is. And I am pretty good at that. I mean, I, I, you know, we knew they were in in sync, and we knew that we, where we wanted them. Jim Boyer. Jim. I don't know why he did that. You know, we had tons of outboard gear. We, we had tons of outboard gear. And one of our favorites was the space station. I think it was Roland, the Roland Space Station. Mm-hmm. We had things to DS. We had pitch changing gear. You know, and at that time, it wasn't so easy as it is today. You know, you had to have an outboard gear, send it to the aux, and bring it back to the board. Right. Anyway, the bottom line is they're out of sync on the record, and I always felt guilty about that. They are fucking out of sync, and, I, and I'm killing myself for 40 years saying, "Lar, you could have done a better job with those." And then Brad tells me he's remixing this record, and he right. says, "Guess what? Jim's affected pile driver is on another track, and that's what's on the record. Jim put the pile driver through one of our outboard gears." That I don't that, know, like had a delay it, or something. Yeah, he yeah. thought it made it fatter, and that I remember too. I remember, and I'm, now I'm saying I'm vindicated. And Jim, <laughs> screw you, you know. But <laughs> you anyway, had it. That was like such a revelation. I told, I was laughing with Brad the other day when he told me that because he's got the multi-track. So it was yeah. there. It just the wrong, it was there, the wrong he, channel. Yeah, he used that. So. <laughs> Excuse me, when you had to fly it in. Were you just cutting off strips of tape and placing them where they needed to go, or were you like? Raising the volume up and down. Uh, we're on a 24-track tape. Uh, most of the time, we had two 24-track tapes slaved together. Not so much so we could use more tracks. I don't know why we had slaves. Maybe maybe we were doing a master and a safety all the time. Phil was crazy with this stuff. He was like, you know, always back up. Oh, to your point before, um, Phil's thing was always be rolling tape. When the the artist is out there in the room, you better be always rolling tape. I don't yeah. care. We're not doing a take or whatever. You better be rolling some tape somewhere. So that's why I have all those outtakes because the mix bus was always coming out to a quarter-inch right. tape. It was always rolling. Oh sure. Yeah. But yeah, to, to answer that, um, the sound effect would be on a piece of quarter-inch tape on a player. Mm-hmm. I know this is like analog land to you guys, but the song is rolling. When you want the pile driver, my quarter-inch sound effect is marked, and I hit play. When it has to go through, chuck, oh, okay. chuck, and that's going to another track on the multi-track. And you're, right. you're essentially re-recording it into that's the master. Being re-recorded, yeah, and that's called the sound yeah. effects track. It's, that's so easy today. You don't even think about these things today. You right. know, it's amazing how drastically different the process is now. Yeah, I always heard the Liberty story about the percussion equipment in the the flight cases, in the road yeah, cases. Yeah, I, I have. That's not in this song though. You're getting it's, ahead. <laughs> see, see, okay, so he misremembered because he mentioned it in Allentown as yeah. well. So it's a different song. Yeah, he's older than me. Liberty did <laughs> did misremember because I'll tell you something else. The door behind this, whatever door he was talking about, I don't know what he's talking about. The door in A1 <laughs> was, was right off of the room, but then there was a little... Boot, uh, like a little vestibule, and then you had to come into another door. I don't remember the door at Media Sound. Maybe he got hit hit in the back of the head with it. I don't know. I don't remember that. But the fight cases were Scandinavian Skies. Now, again, here we go. Scandinavian Skies. 
the airport announcement. We need some kind of, I remember them saying, we need some kind of foreign language, maybe a Dutch or something like that. So we found it, and that's where that came in. You know, We're not going to send somebody out to the airport to do that. We can find it on it. There's tons of sound effects around. So, And right. the, jet, the jet flying a la back in the USSR, you know, whatever we got, we found a jet flying. Right. Um, the TomTom fills were big space station. When you hear them go, boom, 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 and you hear that crazy Tom sound, just, yeah. just, just for you guys, that was the space station. That, I, okay. I personally hated that piece of outboard gear. I think it sounded chintzy and it was weird, but that was an example of the space station. Um, yeah, it Amber, almost made the Tom sounded like they were detuning. Yeah, it was, it was weird. It was, it was weird, but that's, that's I it was they a wanted. flanger. That, yeah, it yeah, yeah. sounds like a flanger, right? Like, who's to pay for this international flight? Okay, so we got there anvil cases full of percussion gear. We ordered mm-hmm. them from SIR or Carol Music, wherever we ordered them from. Order a bunch of percussion. Who's doing all this percussion? We don't, we don't want to take them out of the cases. We want to use the stuff in the cases. And I guess that maybe Billy heard that song on one of the a Beatle records. You know, they used, the, the, you know, George Martin and the Beatles, they, they, they pulled out all the stops. I mean, they oh, yeah. invented this stuff. So whoever had cases, and Liberty, Liberty had, had cases. I think right. the whole, I don't remember who was there, but a lot of them or us were there. I may have even been out there too. Sometimes Jim said, go out. And I was there for, we'll all go down together. I was, I'm on, I'm on that chorus. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. Okay, so that's where this case starts. number two right so pizzicato strings that's dave brucen mm-hmm. beautiful mm-hmm. strings on that uh laura so that snare drum for liberty would be we use that high room mic on pretty much everything that the drums on this record are just i love the drums man liberty is off the <laughs> charts great drummer, yeah. man. and buyer jim liked to use buyer I forgot mm-hmm. the number of the buyer mics, but Jim was a big buyer fan. Elliot liked to use AKG 414s on everything. AKG 414s, that was the Steely Dan sound. Mm, Jim okay. liked a dynamic mic, which was the buyer mics. KM84 on the hi-hat. SM57 on the snare. <laughs> Sennheiser 421 in the kick drum. But... The, the drum processing on this one, Laura, was probably, you know, probably some of the space station, whatever else we were using. Obviously, Sgt. Pepper's on this record, but David Brown's guitar solo on this song. Right, right, right. A la George Harrison. Yeah, the oh, George, my goodness. George Harrison-esque. Yeah. With the sli- he did a slide. I believe that was done as an overdub in Studio R1. That was not done okay. live with the song, yeah. Now I remember it exactly now, yeah. Well, relatively speaking, because there weren't a lot of guitar solos on Billy Joe Records, but were there a lot of outtakes of those, or were those a lot very much composed, as opposed to somebody going in and, and ripping a couple takes? 
if there was a guitar solo, it wouldn't be done. It wouldn't probably wouldn't be done live. So he kind of worked it out, and then would come in and lay it down. Yes, yes. There is one funny tape that I have, and I've, David actually heard this. I think there was a twelve-string guitar for that song, "Prime of Your Life," which became the longest time. It was mm-hmm. a twelve-string guitar, and as you know, it's not easy to tune a twelve-string guitar. Mm. If you look at that picture of A1, he's way in one of those booths. By the way, that's where McCartney did Ram. That was a lot of great music done in that room. David is in that that booth, and me, Billy, and Jim Boyer are in the control room. And Jim says, "Jim, I think I think maybe Phil was in the room too." But Phil says, "All right, now detune. He's ready. He's all tuned up. He's tuned it. Now be okay. And then we're going to go for a take." Detune the Studer. The Studer 24 track had a, had a very speed on it. You could actually very speed it. So just by uh, the slightest amount, I would slow it down or speed it up. I forget. And and he'd start playing and be out of tune. He'd go, "What the hell?" Start strumming, you know. And finally, he breaks a, a string, and that was the culmination of it. And Billy, you can hear Billy in the talk back, "Yay!" And that was uh, one of those stupid things that we used to do. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> One thing I want to say to start this one, about 30 years ago, Liberty did a drum instructional book, which had 11 Billy songs with the drums mixed out. One of them being pressure on the recording, you have Liberty getting ready to count it off. And you hear what I believe is Phil in the talk back saying, all right, now let's not tell the guitar players that we slowed it down. And then Liberty (laughs) counts it in and they go. But let's not tell the guitar players we slowed it down. Here we go. Ready? Good job, guys. No, it's a troublemaker, you know? He was, he was a troublemaker. <laughs> yeah. You know? Who, who does that? And I'll tell you, Phil was often out in the room. Uh, very often, mm. Phil had a chair out in the room alongside Billy or somewhere near Billy with his own little talkback mic. And, you know, he wanted mm. to be out there with the band and he would communicate with Jim. Of course, we could hear whatever he was saying, but he right. had a set of, set of cans and he had his own mic and he wanted to be out there with them and whatever. I mean, what Phil wanted, Phil got because Phil was Phil. Like I said, he was a harsh teacher, but if you listened to him, you could learn a lot and learn to help him. Oh, kick-ass snare the Beatles used a Mellotron the Mellotron was a keyboard before all the sampling you guys have to know what that is there were Mm -hmm. 20 keys that used 20 playback heads and 20 tapes inside and you depressed the keys and the tapes played and you had whatever was recorded on the tape come out of the keyboard so one day Billy wanted it have a Mellotron, and so we recorded two octaves of his voice, maybe G below middle C to the next G to the next G, two octaves, and he and chromatically too. So, and and they were ahs, so he could ah, and probably got as long as he could hold his breath, half step up, ah, ah, and we recorded. Jim and I recorded all those tapes. And then we sent the tapes to Mellotron, wherever Mellotron is, I don't know. And the Mellotron mm-hmm. keyboard came back, and that was the Mellotron. In the bridge of this song, 
That was yeah. supposed to be the Mellotron, but it turned out to be one of the sampling keyboards that we were able to get. I think it was a Fairlight or something, but we never used the Mellotron. The only time I remember using the Mellotron was Scandinavian Skies at 418, the number 418, which mm -hmm. is the bridge. You can hear ah, Billy's okay. voice going, ah, 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 ah. Uh, that is the Mellotron, and that's the that's only it. place I can mm -hmm. remember actually using the Mellotron. So getting yeah. back to pressure, six balalaika players from Russia come into <laughs> Studio A1, set them in, I don't know if they were from Russia, but they were balalaika players, in a semicircle, right in front of the, the window there, and you know, right where the, about where the piano is in A1. Mm. <laughs> that's, uh, there's battle-like tracks there. Doug's bass was just a real McCartney-esque man. Really, I think he played a Rick. I don't remember what he played. Maybe a Rickenbacker. I thought those were just a, it was a layer of synths on pressure, and that was that was actual acoustic. Um... I mean, if you're gonna hire six Balalaika players, you know, you, you gotta yeah. get your money's worth. <laughs> Did you guys yeah. see the movie Walk Hard? Walk yeah. Hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Balalaika yeah. players. Be more Balalaika, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? Because it all ended up in a, in a mix together, and there was a synth. Mm -hmm. Billy did a synth, too. That, 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 yeah. that, that. You don't know necessarily that they're Balalaika players in the mix, but they're, they are there, and Billy's synth is there also. What does it mean? He was playing, oh, yeah, he was playing. Oh, that's the, that's the vocoder. Vocoder. Mm -hmm. For the life of me, I couldn't remember what he was using. We were, we were playing with a vocoder, and it was just, it, it sounds ridiculous now because of what we have at our disposal now. Sure. But he could sing into the mic. It was a keyboard with a mic, and he could go, ah, uh, and play the keyboard. And it's mm -hmm. sort of like, what's his name's microphone Peter through Frampton. a keyboard. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, right? exactly. <laughs> and he was trying to do because I have outtakes of that too. You know, the, trying to do pressure with the vocoder, it never, it never really worked <laughs> yeah, correctly. Sure. That's not in there. So, was there a conscious decision at all for pressure to speed up? Because that's one I know they never really worked on a click, but that's one where I've always noticed if you were ever to put it on repeat, you would notice how much faster they are at the end of that song. And the more I listen to, the more I wonder if it was thematic it's, that they they kept upping the tempo billy never used the click we use clicks on gaucho billy dan used clicks all the time he used the devito i always felt it as just uh, an energy you know uh, just an energy like it was friend it was frantic you know pressure right. yeah i have good night saigon next phil and billy recorded a set of wind chimes at the beginning of that uh, in Studio R2 in the beginning because they wanted it to be like the helicopters flying in, the wind is coming, and the wind chimes are... Mm -hmm. And they got all tangled up and have an outtake of that too, Billy. <laughs> ah, these things got all tangled up. What are you doing? <laughs> um, helicopter sound effects. Um, stock, again, a stock, stock sound effect. And we all recorded a bunch of times we will all go down together i was in there to remember jim saying you go out and sing too they need more voices i didn't get a credit for that that's okay i got a gold record so hey there you go <laughs> small consolation but yeah <laughs> yeah got some beautiful demos of him writing that one for me you know I, I, like i said i'm a piano player too and i thought he was a genius i always viewed him as a genius songwriter piano player like amazing like these myths he's got these myths 
He doesn't yeah. have long, delicate fingers. He has mitts. Right. And he just like pounds it out. And he's a great guy. I mean, we'd be joking around the studio and you know, he'd be joking around with us. And it wasn't like, you know, I'm the star, I'm Billy and, and you're not. It wasn't not. precious. Was like one of the, yeah. Yeah, he was one of the gang. It was really fantastic mm. to work with. I really felt, I really feel lucky to have, have been a small part of that. So she's right on time. Billy putting his chin down like this and doing his Ray Charles was a no-no for Phil. Phil did not like that which is pretty ironic considering Billy wound up working with Ray Charles. She's right on time. If you listen, you can hear the Ray Charles influence and Phil was always on him to knock that off. Stop that, don't do that. I don't know why. I wasn't a Ray Charles fan, I was, I was younger, but I see it now and I, and I understand where that came from. Why Phil didn't want him to do that, I don't know, but they would always like be sniping at each other about it. The intro, and then you have the drum fill going into the first verse. It almost feels like Billy's keyboard intro is free form because if you're counting off with that, it's not lined up once Liberty comes in with his fill. Yeah, it's like there's no count on that. Right. I, mean, I don't I don't know why that was. Isn't that funny? There must be a story here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Something was done. It's a piano and B3. It's a piano and an organ together. I'm wondering if it was multi-tracked and it was just there was no count or something like that. I don't know. Maybe, you know, it could be. The piano intro may not have been on there. They may have done the track. I bet you that's what it was. I'll bet you they did the track first. One, <clears throat> two, Three. Da, 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 da. And he added the piano intro. I'll bet you that's what it was. Uh, that piano intro almost does feel like an afterthought. Not that I remember that, but if I had a guess, yeah, because it doesn't make sense. Because then who would who would cue Liberty when to come in? I'll bet you that piano intro wasn't on there, and they just did the song with a count off. Billy would remember. Yeah, Billy would remember. All right, that's it. We're that getting him on sense, the line though. for this. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is going to be our shot. <laughs> well, Brad's got the, the the tapes now. We're going to have to double back and ask him if there's any indication. The indication would be mm -hmm. that the piano and the B3 organ are on separate tracks, but they would be on separate tracks anyway. But right. mm -hmm. here's the indication. If you open up the piano track uh -huh. and you hear leakage, that means that the piano was live. And my theory is, is no good. Right. If it's clean and there's no leakage, then I'll bet you that was it. It was an afterthought. Okay. The, mm -hmm. the intro was an afterthought. When Brad was doing the, uh, the Atmos mix for the album, before I heard it, I was kind of joking to myself. I was like, I wonder if he uh, snipped off the beginning of Billy saying intro on pressure going, you know, because Billy would kind of run his words sometimes into cues and it's on the record. And sure enough, Brad cleaned it up. We're in the middle where he says intro. After Sesame Street, what does it mean? You only hear him saying the word in of intro because he kind of runs into it. Oh, I, I, don't, I didn't remember that. I, yeah. I, I remember. What, so what does it mean? I remember that. So she's right on time. Harpsichord in the instrumental bridge and that was a real we used to rent a harp support from carol music or sir music and that, mm -hmm. that's a real harp support and that was an overdub and i think that was a la da -da 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 -da, the beatles song there are places oh, he was yeah. probably thinking about in my life in my life yeah put a harp, harp support mm -hmm. I, I think that that's where that, where that came from room of our own all live mm -hmm. kick-ass rock and roll man kick-ass doug's bass Whew. Now that you make the point of that one being live, you really hear how much more crackle it has. Yeah. 
that's the way a good rock and roll track is done. And, and Phil, you know, for all of his, you know, classical violin player, that was Phil's genius. I mean, he did Stranger like that. Fifty <laughs> Second Street was a lot of that. Was, right. You know, live tracking. Live tracking was the way they liked to work. Yeah. Billy too. Another Liberty story where about him accidentally turning the beat around. There's a minute there during one of the last It's All Rights where he's playing the snare on one and three instead of two and four. So Liberty's story goes, Phil basically motions him to keep playing. Like he could tell he got lost, but he's like, keep going, purely knowing it was a good take. And that's the take. You reminded me of something. Uh, Los Angelinos, Phil really wanted to make it so the audience was clapping along. Jim and I said, um, the audience wasn't clapping. Phil said, we're going to make them clap. (laughs) You're going to do that. We got an applause loop for probably a small audience, like maybe... 10 or 20 people uh-huh. yeah. clapping, right? And we looped it, so it was going continuously. Yeah. And Phil got a button, he got a talk back button, and we ran the loop through a gate, a noise gate. A noise gate is something that opens and closes depending mm-hmm. right. on the signal strengths. Sometimes they use gates on drums when you don't want the leakage from other drums. You, you put the microphone through a gate and it mm-hmm. closes down when there's no sound. Right. So Phil has his button. Listen to the beginning of Los Angelinos. You'll hear people clapping on one and three. Or one <laughs> yes. and four. And we said, Phil, who are these people? Are they from, are they, are they like from the garment district? People don't clap like that. They clap. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So if you listen to that song, that's yes. Phil. Thank yeah, it's like it's got the, the charge, the, the stomp. Yeah. To- Nobody clapped like that. No. I can't believe that that's on there. Sometimes he wasn't always right, you know. all live full take uh, the full take is on the record minimal overdubs is what I remember wow I remember he didn't have a bridge for that song and mm. it became don't do 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 you have change change we put the change change yeah, yeah. <laughs> really beautiful bridge and he didn't have that one that's an example of the song being written so it was so incredible Scandinavian Skies we, we already talked about pretty yeah. much mm-hmm. Brilliant strings from Dave Grusin. I mean, that was direct Sergeant Pepper. I am the walrus. Probably recorded horns on there. I don't remember. I don't remember if we did. Mm-hmm. We may have. When it came to those strings, what was the process like to get the arranger to do it? Was, was he given a lot of instruction on what to do down to note choices and things? Or was it what he felt? Right. When, when you talk about an arranger, when we did commercials or when Steely Dan did, did horns for their records, mm-hmm. when you talk about an arranger, that's the person who actually writes the music. Rob Mounsey is one of my favorites. Rob worked mm-hmm. a lot with everybody. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, these are Dave Bruson's 
charts. Uh-huh. He wrote the, the notes. Yeah. Dave Gruthen, the arranger, is also the composer. I guess if there was a, an issue or if there was some something that Billy would have rather have or mm. Phil would have rather have heard as a string or horn part, they would have discussed it with Dave and he would have noodled it or finessed it. But mm. that part was not done in the studio with Billy. That you know, Dave would go and, and just come in with the charts. When the parts were approved, because you had string players, you had to be paying musicians to come in and do it. Right, you yeah. don't really want to. You don't want to be creating with 20 string players in the room. You want to have the charts done, and you then you want to bring the string players in. Probably getting like a rough, you know, a rough mix of the basic tracks to go and arrange the arrange the parts on his own, and then come back in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's the way. Funny you mentioned Rob Mounsey because he actually plays on Scandinavian Skies. I'm looking at the liner notes. Oh, did he? I forgot. What did he play on? Uh, it says synthesizer on Scandinavian. Rob is one of my heroes. He's uh, a great musician, a great composer. He has he has solo records of his own that are just. I love his. I love his work. Man. I love. Such a beautiful person. Too. He's speaking the synthesizers and the his arrangement. It must have been such more of a tightrope so to speak, because you, know, you couldn't load these string arrangements into Finale and play them and, and demo them. He had to come in with the string section, they had to play it and then make any changes and hope it was what people wanted, right? True, but you could, I mean, you could put it on a synth. You could do like mock-up uh-huh. synth Oh, you could tracks. back then, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Right. Yeah, sure. There were, there were, I mean, they weren't synths like we, they weren't beautiful string samples like we have today. Like they, they really sound pretty real sounded pretty cheesy and chintzy the stuff back then it was more of an effect you knew that you were listening to a synth yeah there's a great demo of stranger floating around mm-hmm. where it's a casio and yeah like a little drum loop did, yeah have you heard that yeah i that's, have that's it's wild too that people used to use to do demos and then we talked about um where's the orchestra, orchestra. we talked about that the hard mix again mm-hmm. beatlesque yeah. let's mix it like you know i don't i don't care but you know if you don't have both you're not listening stereo. And we always checked our mixes mono. That mm-hmm. was a thing with Phil and Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always check your mixes to mono. And it was, back then it was, because if somebody's listening in their car and they have the stereo, that one speaker, one shitty speaker on in the back and the other one's out on the dashboard or the back, or whatever, it's got to sound good. Right. Yeah. So we used what we used to call awful tones. They were aura tones. The, the actual speaker was aura tone. Uh-huh. It was a square <laughs> about this big, little a little wood enclosure. And they were just cheapo box speakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we would have uh, Jim. I think Jim's speakers were, I think Jim used Visonics. We, you know, you have your studio speakers. Mm-hmm. We had Yuri's up in the, up in the wall both for tracking and mixing. And then on the console, you have your mix speakers. I, I'm pretty sure Jim used Visonics also. He may have had something else, I don't remember. Yamaha was another popular speaker, but in the middle, yeah. you had the, the awful tone. Mm-hmm. These were very important to check in mono for us because we wanted to make sure the mix was popping. And like, where's right. the orchestra? Do you hear that vocal? When you fold it to mono, do you hear Does the it vocal? get buried? Yeah. Because you're pan one side, so we had to make sure. And there's another very famous recording of Phil insisting that Jim and I are not mixing in stereo. And he says, I don't believe you. <laughs> and I'm not, this, this tape is just, it's all of 10 seconds and I call it the Phil Ramon left-right test. Uh-huh. And it's Phil going on the talkback. He said, prove it to me. He says, prove it to me. <laughs> he says, I'm going to go on the talkback. And he, and he goes, this is the left. This is the left. Suck this. This is the left. 
Now we go to the right. <laughs> Cocksucker. This is the right, right, right. And I have that on tape. That's uh, so there good. Was some, there were some trying moments. There were some trying moments uh, with Phil. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but ultimately, you know, the projects got done. And we mixed this record three formats. Quarter inch, 15 IPS Dolby, mm-hmm. which was a standard mix format. Simultaneously, half inch, 30 IPS, no Dolby. That was my favorite. That was everybody's favorite. I don't, okay. The third format was Sony U-Matic cassette, digital. CDs, compact discs were new. They were the cutting edge. And the deal was with CBS, it has to be mixed from the U-Matic cassettes. So really? three formats, Sony U-Matic sounded in, my, in both Jim and my opinion, tinny. They were tinny. Digital yeah. was not digital as we know it today. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about remixing a record that was mastered from that, I say good, good, probably a good thing. I wasn't with Ted Jensen. Ted Jensen did all Billy's mastering with yeah. Bill and Jim. So I can't speak to that exactly with accuracy. Sure. I don't know if, if they did it from that. I don't, they may have you know, they may have said, screw this, we're using the analog and we're going to say yes. Yeah. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I know in the studio, when we had to check things back, the Umatic cassette really was the least favorite of it wasn't warm the, the, the half inch 30 30 ips half inch stereo man you got a quarter inch per side no noise reduction no dolby so the tape breathed you could slam that tape slam that tape and it won't distort if you slam digital it breaks up you can't do it that's why everybody loves analog that's why records are yeah. in vogue and it's a warmer much richer sound. I'm fascinated now about this uh, the slam. So the, the idea is that like if if you really just push the volume and the intensity, the tape could handle it better than digital will. That's correct. Yeah, tape yeah. is a magnet. Tape the tape is particles of magnetic particles glued onto a piece of mylar with a backing on it, mm-hmm. and a tape acts as a compressor. It a- actually acts as a compressor. So I mean, you can't totally overload it because it will distort. Yeah. But if you're looking at your VU meters and they're going into the red, mm-hmm. that's what you really do want with analog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like kick drums, like drum tracks. It's okay if you're going into the red. With digital, you can't go into the red because you're going to be... You can't do it. Well, Larry, it's been a real pleasure getting to hear your thoughts on you know working with Bill and Jim and just the process of working on these records. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of stories we haven't even tapped into happy to share my uh, experience and memories uh keep up the good work somebody's got to document all this stuff Larry, thanks so much again for sitting down with us. It was a treat to get to know you and to learn about your work, not only with Billy, but Thundercats, which totally blew my mind listening to Jack's episode for the first time. Your insight into working with both Brad and Phil and with Billy and the band was super fascinating. And it was great to hear your insights as you went through your notes when we went track by track. That was a lot of fun for us. You know, we knew it was a a studio heavy album, but I didn't truly understand what that entailed until they told us how many layers of things they did to make a coherent whole 
uh, record out of that. Coming off of Glass Houses, which was essentially the five guys, not a whole lot of overdubs, maybe a shaker or, you know, some castanets. <laughs> Don't ask me why. It's a, it's a very different, more live record. And so to go so different and just hearing about the effects, the approaches, and all this new technology that they really took advantage of to make such a textured record. So cool to hear about. Now we are going to shift it to your colleague, Brad Lee, who we've been fortunate to chat with a number of times. Uh, Brad's going to share with us some of his memories on working on the Nylon Curtain. So let's throw it to Brad. In the production credits of the album, it states that it was recorded both at A&R and at Media Sound Studios. Did it start there and then move over? The way I recall it, and Larry will have a different remembrance, but the way I recall was I thought it started at Media. We were doing a lot of work at Media at the time. A lot of it had to do, I believe, with Phil was one of the owners of A&R, and he was sort of banging heads with the other owners. So that's when we sort of, st- you know, stopped recording at A&R as much. I, I believe we'd also worked a lot on a good amount of, did some tweaking of songs in the attic at Media. So I think we are, had already started doing work at Media at that point. I remember it was a converted church. Do you remember what the vibe was like in that room? One of the reasons we were there was the vibe was very similar to A&R. A&R was the old Columbia recording studios, and it was a large open room that wasn't uh, that reverberant. So you could put a number of musicians in the same room and have them not spilling to each other in a, in a nasty sounding way. And to a large degree, media was the same. It was a little bit liver than A&R, so I think we had to use some more baffles, but it had a similar feel. And also another trick we used to do at A&R with Billy, which I think we did at media, was we used to just take regular photographers' clip lights and put colored floodlights in them and put them up on really high mic stands. So we sort of darkened the room down so areas were lit with red, blue, you know, so it sort of gave it almost like a stage-like feel. But I think media was pretty similar in that regard. So by now you guys had established that, you know, Billy was always going for a live feel where, you know, you said you'd make the studio look like a stage and a lot of the tracks were cut live. But this was the album where it was a real sort of studio album. Studio is another instrument kind of approach where there was a lot of layering and crafting in the studio. Did all that change the actual tracking? Was there maybe less of an emphasis on trying to get a live feel versus trying to get a more Beatles-y, let's layer things on top of each other approach? I think for a lot of the songs, it was absolutely the same. A lot of Billy's vocals were still live with the band on that record. I think there were certain songs that were probably done more piecemeal, like Scandinavian Skies and Where's the Orchestra. And I think probably some of the songs were possibly reworked. I know that uh, there was an alternate ending to Allentown that they did with an orchestra and they wound up bailing on it. But if you go back to Where's the Orchestra, it sort of goes back into Allentown in a similar way. So I think they may have stepped back and maybe recut some stuff but aside from a couple of the songs, um, it's still all. I mean, I was amazed when I, I, you know, I sort of went back and reviewed notes and stuff before we did this podcast. I'm just still shocked that Allentown is bass, drums, piano, and acoustic guitar. 
that's it. That really powerful sounding song is just those four guys, except for an electric guitar solo that's overdubbed at the end. That's pretty impressive because, I mean, that is a big, powerful sounding song. I mean, the whole record is, but that song just kind of jumps out at you right at the gate. Right. And they, and a lot of that's lib, but but the, the only thing they did was on that was they doubled the acoustic guitars. But aside from okay. that, it's, wow. it's that's what it is. To that point, like the last time we spoke, we touched on how so many of the albums, pretty much from Glass Houses on, each had a distinctly different feel. When it came to the Nylon Curtain, did the concept or the feel for this album evolve over time? Or is that something that was hashed out in pre-production, like, hey, we want this to have this sort of feel, or we want to take this approach? Or did that really all start coming together and starting to come into play and see where the album wanted to go? I think there's probably two things that I'm not aware of. Billy and Phil were really tight. We didn't have discussions about theory and stuff in the studio and concepts. I think Billy and Phil probably went out and Billy probably told them about this idea. So there wasn't really any discussion that, that, that I remember about like trying to make a concept album in the studio. And the other thing with Billy was he did a high percentage of his writing in the studio. So I'm thinking on this record, he probably came in with slightly more formed ideas. You know, it's, it's really kind of interesting. I was, I've been asked recently about that, and I don't recall ever Billy saying, I want to make a Beatlesque record. It was just the concept that was in his head and the approach that was in his head at the time. Yeah, as we're talking, I hear myself saying these things, and it's occurring to me that we're all just kind of parroting what we've read in reviews and retrospectives. Do you ever get the impression that some of these ideas were maybe retconned, like people kind of sat back, listened to the results, and said, yeah, we went for a Beatlesy thing here, or yeah, a retro thing, or yeah, a new wave thing? Do you ever feel like you know, maybe somebody was going backwards and listening and try to put a frame around it? I think that Billy must have had the intent and executed it. And Phil mm-hmm. must have been aware of it. I just wasn't aware of the conversations. Like if you look at Laura and Scandinavian Skies, you know, he's really tipping his hat to John Lennon. Because I wasn't privy or don't recall the conversations about this sort of concept record, I'm not sure, you know, I was asked recently if, if John's Lennon death had anything to do with this. It's like, I don't know. I don't remember. So Brad, what was your role on the nylon curtain? I was associate engineer. That meant I was in my process of moving up from being an assistant engineer to an engineer. And I think at that time I was working on a number of records with Phil. So I would sort of jump in and help them set up, get sessions started, getting sessions running. I I would guess I did some overdubs. I did a small amount of recording. Jim Boyer was the main recording engineer and was the mixer of the record. So I was sort of like a, a third hand, just sort of helping things get set up and going. You know, fairly early in the production of the album is when Billy had the infamous motorcycle accident. Do you remember that time frame at all and what was what was going on? I recently looked up some of my notes and actually that's not quite accurate. The recording was almost completed at the point that Billy had the accident. I believe that Billy had the accident in April. Most of the record was recorded in like... Uh, November, December of 81 into the beginning of 82. Virtually all the recording was done by March of 82. I think there was some additional recording done by March, and I believe Billy had the accident in April. I remember Billy having the accident specifically because my friend Jim Boyer was riding with him. They were both out on bikes. I remember at some point being at Billy's house with his hand bandaged, but I don't remember it ever being... uh, 
an issue in the studio. Like, I don't remember Billy showing up with a bandaged hand and not able to play. I'm not sure if it was we were in the mixing stage at that point when that happened or if we delayed the mixing stage. I don't recall. But I think that the major- the album was uh, uh, virtually all recorded at the time he had the accident. It sounds like it probably allowed some healing time that wasn't going to delay the creative process of actually the bulk of the recording. Yeah, You know, at the time, there was a tremendous amount of... I remember that what happened was... He was brought to a hospital in Long Island. A doctor told Billy he wouldn't play piano again. They arranged to fly him into helicopter him into Manhattan, and he went to see a sports surgeon that worked with a major sports team in New York. So he needed time to heal. I mean, I don't, he wouldn't have been able to go out and tour and support. I think he was very concerned about his hand and had to heal before he would be able to, you know, do promotional uh, tours yeah. and things like that. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the mixes were actually done at that point. Or if they were done after his hand healed, like if they were done closer to the release date or if they were done closer to the record date. We also got a glimpse inside Media Sound for the Saturday Night Live feed in 81. Were you, were you in the room there? Were you on hand that day? Yeah, no, not only am I in the room, <clears throat> Billy's wearing my jacket. Is that his yours? His leather jacket that he's wearing on Miami 2017. I bought this great Calvin Klein. My girlfriend got me this great Calvin Klein leather jacket. And I can show you photographs where everybody caught me. Larry Frank got one. Phil bought one. And so right before he went out to shoot it, like you know, I, he's like, hey, Brad, can I borrow your jacket? So that's my proud moment that Billy's wearing my jacket in Miami 2017 from Saturday, you know, on Saturday Night Live. Did that require a lot of logistics outside the usual setup for recording? Yeah, I've been through a few of those. What they need to do is they usually drop like a satellite truck out front. And there's a two-way video feed. Our audio setup was basically the same because we were already there setting up working on the album. So they have a video feed. So we had monitors where we could see the stage at SNL. And then back at SNL, they could always see us even when they weren't you know, filming. What was that session like? I'm always curious, uh, especially when they do it remotely. How long was the band there before the performance? You know, did they still do sound checks? We did a sound check earlier in the day. I don't recall that probably, you know, SNL is done twice a day. They, they do SNL at like seven o'clock as a dress rehearsal run through with a full audience. And then they cut what they don't like on the show when they redo it live at 1130. I'm pretty sure that we were there all day, but you know, we were crazy in those days. It was just like another thing. Things were going so good and you know, we were working so hard that it's like, oh yeah, today we're doing SNL. It was fun and I remember it. It was just part of the insanity of the time. I've also checked. I, I don't know that anybody else has ever done a remote live music broadcast on SNL. I think that's the only one. I can't think of one either. They also had the Go-Go's live in studio. So to have Billy also do the remote live performance Definitely a unique thing from what I can recall. When you worked with Phil, nobody went in the control room. Nobody that wasn't part of the session ever went in the control room. Once or twice during an album, you may have a playback for somebody. You became like a a little team. You know, it was the band, it was Billy, it was Phil, it was Jim, myself, and Larry. And that was it. And those were the only people. You know, we were just sort of riding this wave. And it was a blast. There was a lot more of experimentation that went on in this record. You know, then Glass Houses and 52nd Street. But in many ways, it was it was us still doing the same thing. It's like we got the old team back together and we're doing what we do. And I think everybody sort of had that feeling. There was always a lot of humor with those guys. It's not like anybody got all cer- cerebral 
And also, you know, Billy loves to write, loves to perform, but he doesn't have a great deal of patience. He doesn't like the studio bullshit. I think it was still relatively concise. There's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of stuff that was laid down on the record that was, wasn't used in the final mixes, you know, where they tried things and they, you know, they may have put horns on Allentown and other stuff. They went, no, let's get rid of that. Billy's projects, I think, sort of carry themselves in a certain regard. He'll come in with an intent. You know, when it was glass houses, it was like new wave was hitting and punk rock and all this stuff. And he was feeling it. And that intent just carried through the record. Now, the set des trois, which doesn't really go with that intent. But I think this was similar in the same way. He had this sort of, I don't know if vision's the right word, but, you know, he had this sort of way he wanted to approach this next record. And they just did it. This was different in that, you know, there were some arrangers brought in to do strings and horns and things like that. But the way I recall it, it was actually in many ways very similar to all his records. Speaking about overdubs, I think this is more for listeners who are so much more used to thinking about recording in terms of digital. You know, when it came to something like jumping on an instrument case or getting that pile driver sound, what sort of challenges existed to get those sort of things in sync? Like, obviously, now you just drag and drop those sound effects wherever you want. But what was it like just having these ideas for a sort of extended instrumentation and then trying to figure out how to make that actually work in a musical sense? It required an incredible amount of engineering skill because this album was, for the most part, 24 track. Mixed at A&R recording, that's a 32 input console. That means we had 32 inputs to play back all these instruments. Now, an additional mixer was added to the side where all the different effects were returned. But as far as the musical instrument, they're primarily coming up on 32 channels, which in Pro Tools today with digital, you can have 132 channels and it's no problem. The recording process is like you will have on one track that box shaking, and then there's going to be a guitar part, and then there's going to be a string part. It's just amazing to see all the parts that were interclustered on these basic 24 tracks. It did go over 24 tracks. There was a second machine, but because we didn't have large mixers, it wasn't used liberally. You know, there would be four or five tracks possibly pulled from the second machine. So it required a tremendous amount of skill on the part of the engineer and to keep track of all of it and to have it all recorded when you change from one instrument to another on a specific channel, have it all recorded so it plays back. When we were mixing, you could sit down and tweak and adjust the levels of everything. But when you're, you say, well, I want to do a guitar solo on this song. When you hit play on the, on the, on the 24 track, you want to hear everything play back properly. And you can't sit there and turn 24 knobs live. And we weren't using automation in those days when we were overdubbing. So it required a lot of skill to fit all that stuff on the tape. And we've sort of touched on this a little in terms of the number of tracks you were using and having to use the second console. Just in general, can you remember any challenges specifically with this record? Uh, Anything that came up in general or something that was particular to the Nylon Curtain versus other Billy Joel albums? Well, I mean, there's one thing that is just absolutely different about this record than all of Billy Joel's other records, and that's the sound. And it's the work that Jim Boyer did. You know, I've listened to it carefully lately. There's a lot of really deep effects that you just don't call up like you call up a preset on a computer plug-in now. You know, there was a lot of twisting and turning to get the the flanges and the phases and the delays and the slap reverbs. This is one record that 
if you were to strip all of that out and just play the tracks without the final mix, it would be a very different experience. I think to a large degree, you know, Glass Houses, 52nd Street, most of his records, as long as it's a nice mix, it's going to represent the song well. And this is one that the production and engineering is required to get the song to make sense or to have the, the power that it has. So Jim did an incredible job on this. Listening to it with a good pair of headphones as well too, just kind of hearing how some of those effects move around the stereo field. It's a much different sonic experience, like you said, than any of his others. Yeah. And some of the effects are, are it's a little hard to pick out, but some of the, the effects are actually very dominant in the song. It sort of blends in with the song, so you don't realize it's happening, but it shifts like the whole tonality of the song. I'm not even too familiar with where, say, guitar pedal effects were at that point. I know they were, you know, you used to have, a, have to have a whole reverb box or a reverb tank. And now, of course, it's it's been a stomp pedal for probably decades. But when you had to do that sort of stuff in the studio, analog, were you using any sort of effects pedals or, or, or physical accessories? Or were these things that had to be done on the board just by trickery, so to speak? These were done with early outboard professional hardware devices for the most part there was a box mm-hmm. called the lexicon prime time and an ursa minus space station which is you know if you try to buy an ursa minus space station right now it's probably going to cost you ten thousand dollars when it probably cost 900 when it came out <laughs> it's a very wacky and weird box there were a few others there's eventide and there there was uh, a lot of early digital and analog effects Possibly some pedals were used. When we used to set up for Billy, like on glass houses, normally when we set up for tracking for Billy, we would have four effects at our fingertips, of which three were actually sort of, it would be an an orange phaser, an MXR orange phaser, guitar pedal, a space echo, and a slap delay, and a reverb. Because if he's singing with an effect, he wants to hear it, or playing a piano with an effect, he wants to hear it while he's playing. So we always had that at our fingertips. But this was like, a whole nother level. And this must have, in hindsight, taken time during tracking, which wasn't that usual for Billy because he didn't have the uh, patience really for the technology. He was all about the music. So uh, there's no way that some of these songs weren't evolved with these effects without some of them being you know, built up during the tracking sessions. How big were these things? I don't know how big a spring reverb box is or the, 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 the was you talking about the flanger before? Most of the ones I'm mentioning were 19 inches wide by about four inches high by about 20 inches deep. And they would, you'd screw them into your studio the furniture. Back. It was early digital. And then there was something called analog bucket brigade, which was just before digital, an attempt to do like delays with analog circuitry. In hindsight, it's also surprising, you know, like you said, given Billy's lack of patience for things in the studio, that this approach even happened altogether, you know, especially sandwiched in between Glass Houses and An Innocent Man, which the stories I've heard, the, the, you know, those basic tracks went pretty fast. Yeah, but I think he loved it. You know what I mean? Like when you're working on Saigon and you yeah. come up with that hybrid synthesizer and real helicopter sound. You know, I think I even remember that day. I think I even remember the keyboard. It may have been a Juno or something. When he heard that, that excited him. That sound there is a hybrid of like a real sample of one and a keyboard. Yeah, it's both. And so for something like that, was it a a matter of like, hey, you know, we got this field recording of a helicopter. Now we need to find a way to enhance it because it doesn't sound quite like a helicopter, even though you know that's what it is. I think it's like the same as doing um, 
sound design for a major motion picture, you know, an action adventure film where you can take the literal sound, but you can make it more intense by thickening it up with other elements. Recording a helicopter from, you know, 200 feet away is a thinner sound and it's not as direct. But if you try to record a helicopter right up, you're going to get all the wind from the rotors and it's going to be really difficult. So it's taking Mm -hmm. the true helicopter sound that's a little bit thinner and thickening it up with a synthesizer. Yeah, I mean, in the question you asked me about uh, the piano and show and choose right on time, I look at the uh-huh. track sheet. It says Billy mm-hmm. Piano, doesn't say fix, so there's no, they didn't record anything over. I listened to the drums and the real drums and they match, but it says at the top of the track sheet, she's right on time, take one, mm-hmm. take three, body, take one, drum fill. So I'm going, well, <laughs> they, they went up right up to that drum fill into the song and that's a different piece. It is a splice then. Um, yeah, there's a splice there somewhere. And because it says drum fill, I can't, th- that's the only predominant drum fill I can think of in that song that you would know that by drum right. fill, it's that intro. It's funny because Jack, you know, Jack and I are both drummers. And when this was probably two years ago, when we were, we were going talking about it and he and I are trying to count, I'm like thinking of it as one recording, like how is Liberty counting this in? Because it's like, yeah, but you know what you can't hear? He's keeping time on the hi-hat. When I went back and listened, when I went back and listened, and a matter of fact, when I solo the piano track, there's like a into the the last, the four into the one is you can hear. That's the only thing I could hear in the piano was the last hi-hat hit. But when I soloed the drum overheads, I could hear Billy's piano leaking and he very softly was playing time. Wow. But they would go together with the edit. Do you know what I mean? When you made the edit, you would get the same hi-hat performance with the piano, no matter, you know, you would still hear right. it. So you would line up the hi-hat you heard on the piano with the hi-hat you heard on the drums to, to get that in time if you were putting two together, is what you're saying? You would you'd do the cut right on the uh, the first hit of the time. But you would use the hi-hats as, to mark it. Well, yeah, no, no. That was just, I'm just saying he was doing that to... to he played it so softly. I don't think Billy heard it, but it was uh-huh. giving some time. It was just like kind of for him to kind of... Yeah, just to yeah. just to feel it out, get into dun, the rhythm. Yeah, and maybe maybe that was some sort of Gonzo, uh, <laughs> you know, just came off the hi hat. Yeah, this is the kind of now. nerdy stuff we get into yeah. on here. Well, I got a funny like, one for you. Yeah. I got a I got a funny one for you. Um, Allentown, Allentown's yeah. the pile driver sound effect has always annoyed me because it's out of time, right? Uh huh. So, so I've made a joke to Steve. I said, oh, man, when I mix Allentown, I'm going to see that because I can do it in Pro Tools. I'm putting that fucking pile driver in time. <laughs> and Steve goes, oh, I love that the way it is. So I go to mix it and I bring the fader up with a pile driver on the, on the master and it's in time. And I'm like, they put a delay on it to make it go. They did it to make it sound more can- mechanical. They yeah. added a delay. So it's the delay that on the pile driver that's not in time with the music. It's not the pile driver. So, so that the original was actually pile driver's not on there. They'll just the delay is there? No, it's both. Oh, it's it the is original okay, pile yeah. driver, but the delay is not in a in a musical increment. You oh, know, when, I see. when yeah. it slaps back. <laughs> so that creates that created the delay. So it was actually in time on the track. Yeah. So I had to uh, I had to go and create that delay that I hated. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, Larry was saying the same thing. It sort of bugged him forever because he was like, I know I could have done that better. I don't know why. He felt like he was off that day or something. Yeah, and, and and I, it's funny. It. Larry and I talked, and I I told him. I said, Yeah, no, man. That's that's in the mix. That's that's a delay put in the mix. The pile driver was fine. 
Brad, once again, thank you so much for, for taking the time, sharing your memories with us, giving us your insight on just how these records were put together and how records in general are put together and what the in- music industry looks like. Always great talking with you. Always great uh, hearing these stories. Thank you to Larry, who really dug deep and provided us with a lot of great detail and insight. So that's it for us this time around. But uh, as always, we want to hear from you. Please let us know your thoughts. What do you think of these episodes, by the way, where we we, we get really granular and in, into the weeds with the guys behind the glass on these? Do you enjoy them as much as we do? Uh, do they enhance the listening experience for you when you go back and re-listen to the albums? Uh, any other thoughts? You know, we love to hear from you. You know, we respond uh, when we can. Sometimes it takes us a few weeks, but we get back to everyone eventually. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But, oh, yeah, and, you know, we have our Discord server, which which we tend to get into uh, every so often. Yeah, I think the more the merrier in there. But, uh, yeah, hop on in, uh, find us there. I don't even know. How, how the hell do we tell people to get into that thing? I've got a link to the Discord server in our show notes, so you can just check out the show notes and click into it for an invite. And also, yeah. you know, we've got our website, glasshousespod.com. Yeah, that's kind of a one-stop shop for all the links to all the stuff. So that's another place you can go to to listen to us and figure out where we're at and what we're doing. Now go ahead, Michael. Tell them to uh, smash that subscribe button, bro. Oh, yeah. You know, we don't do a whole lot in the YouTube world, too, but we have a YouTube channel as well. So hit the subscribe, smash that bell, as the kids say. You know, whatever platform you listen to us on, uh, like, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. And leave a five-star rating positive review all that fun stuff goes a long way to help us get in front of more people and you guys are rocking it for us so keep it up man we'll see you guys soon we'll see you next time thanks everyone achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.